Have you ever wondered if you could or should make a product out of your research and start a company? If so, you've found the right podcast. We welcome the curious, the foolishly optimistic, and the cynically hopeful to the Innovator's Garage, where we learn from the wild successes, confounding setbacks, and horrible failures of people just like you. I'm your host, Teddy Johnson, the Director of Technology Development at the NIH-funded Institute of Translational Health Sciences. In this episode, we'll explore how to know when you have a fundable idea with our guest, Eric Larson. Eric is a seasoned entrepreneur and investor here in Seattle, working with emerging Northwest companies seeking to scale by leveraging his broad experience in engineering, technology, finance, and business operations, uh, advising companies, and he's led multiple fundraising rounds. Eric Larson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Teddy. So just to start with, how do people find you? We really try to be well-known. Like, we are on campus. We do uh, office hours for uh, budding entrepreneurs. They can sign up for a slot with one of our experienced entrepreneurs and come by and get some advice on whether they're ready to raise money or what their strategy should be. We uh, try to reach out and get to know different research labs at the University of Washington. We try to be well-known at CoMotion. Several of us are volunteers with Life Science Washington here um, as mentors in their WIND mentor program. So we're trying to be out there and we try to promote our organization, but we also welcome people to reach out to us as well. So if you if you talk to people who are innovators trying to be entrepreneurs, they'll act like they have no idea how to find money, where to get money. And hearing you talk about it, it sounds like you're struggling to find them. Like, how does that, how does that line up? Well, I wouldn't say we're struggling to find companies, but mm-hmm. we want to find, we want every company that has potential coming out of the University of Washington to at least check in with us and see if we're an appropriate funder for them. Mm-hmm. So it takes work from us to get in front of all these companies because sometimes companies will go outside the region to other investors or they'll go straight to VCs or other places where the angel investor networks can be a really good first place for companies not just to get money but also to tap into some of the advice and the experience of the angels because most of the angel investors have been entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. and they're doing what they're doing in part to help the next generation of entrepreneur be successful wanted to ask you one other thing. I think you, um, I've heard you talk a lot about University of Washington. Do you also cover, you know, outside of Washington as Alliance of Angels? Or We do. We, we really focus on the Pacific Northwest. Probably 70 to 80 percent of our investments are companies in the Pacific Northwest, which is Oregon, Washington, Idaho, British Columbia, although we don't see a lot of deals from Canada. But we do 20 to 30 percent of our deals will come from outside the Pacific Northwest. Often they're referred to us from another angel group, but sometimes we come across them on our own. Mm-hmm. So even, I guess we're sitting here close to University of Washington, but you guys look pretty broadly. We do. And we also look at Washington State for sure. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. Wonderful. Wonderful. How do you parse through the opportunities? How do you help the people you're talking to figure out 
if they have something that's fundable? Um, and how do you think about when you want to engage? So with the first part of that question, for whether somebody has something that's fundable, there's a few things to consider with it. Sometimes we'll see an idea and we'll think it's more of a feature in a product than a product or a business on its own. And then, you know, if it's a university spin out or a proposed university spin out, we might be encouraging them just to try to find a licensing partner for that technology. Other times we'll see things that could be a standalone business or could be built into a standalone business and then either sold to someone else or you know, potentially IPO. But most, you know, at least 95% of the successful companies get acquired versus IPO. So we're trying to assess, is the product complete enough is one factor. And there's another factor that comes in as well, which is does the inventor want to leave the university or go with the company and be part of the company? Um, often full professors, they don't want to leave academia, and I don't blame them. But is there someone senior from their lab who will go out with the technology? Or are they looking for a team to build out the company and really run the company independently? Does the PI or the, the investigator have a realistic view of what it's going to take to run a company if they do if they're saying they want to go with the company and run the company, because it's a lot different, it's a lot of work. A CEO never stops fundraising the whole time they have a company. And I tell the prospective CEOs that if you really enjoy doing the science or the technology development, you need to understand if you become the CEO, you're not going to be doing that much science. You know, you're going to be fundraising, you're going to be talking with investors, you're going to be talking with prospective companies. But there's really no shame in founding a company, being an initial CEO, and then stepping back later and becoming, say, a chief product officer at the company and bringing in somebody who can really help scale and drive the sales of your company. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, and I think that's really helpful because a lot of times what we run into is this concern about shame um, and, and the power of ego. Right. So I'm curious how you help people hear what you're trying to say, because that hearing has to come through <laughs> the fear of shame and the power of ego. Um, thinking about this from the perspective of the innovator, of the researcher, when they hear things from you, like, what does it sound like? How, how, do, how do they take what you say? Yeah, it's a challenge sometimes to communicate this to the to the prospective CEO. Part of it is what I was describing earlier about what the realistic job tasks will be of the CEO versus the lead designer of the product. Because often what drove that scientist or technologist to create something is a love of the science and a desire to help people. So that's one part of it. Another part is explaining just the normal evolution of a company that if they step aside as a CEO later, they'll still keep the title of founder. That never goes away, and that's a pretty cool tagline to have on your business card. But also that in the evolution of a company, you know, often in the first two years, you're trying to prove 
that you can take your technology and build it into something that can be scaled beyond the lab bench into a commercial product. And that's one set of skills. Where in that first couple years, it's around engineering or science and building out the product. Once you've got that product, the key role of the company becomes to sell it, to find company, other companies who want to buy it, distribute it, users who want to buy it. It really turns into more of a sales role for that CEO. And there's a, there's a real skill shift that happens. And if the company is growing in terms of staff, there's also a job change there of you're going to be managing multiple people and spending your time managing people versus running scientific experiments. And so there's a real inflection point that should happen at a successful company of going from that engineering phase to the sales and marketing phase. And that's a very natural time to bring someone else in. It could also be manufacturing skills could become really important for the company. There's also an aspect of this with fundability that having these conversations are kind of a test of whether a company's fundable. If a CEO is saying, I want to be the CEO forever, they're probably going to have some ego challenges and not be as coachable going down the road. If we're having this conversation with a person and they're receptive to the potential that they might have to step aside sometime, it's a good sign for the coaching. And there's also examples that we can cite of other companies where the CEO who brought it forward stepped aside and the company was very successful. So we try to explain, we try to coach, uh, and we try to communicate effectively with these entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think especially the, the being able to convey what happens as the company evolves. I know you have a lot of experience with that in your past, having, you know, scaled companies from, you know, people in populations of, or scaling from staff in the tens to, you know, getting into the hundreds and going from, you know, millions in revenue to billions. Um, those are some big changes. And so I think you're being able to bring that to the community and being able to have that perspective when you're talking to folks is, is wonderfully helpful. And, um, I would just hope that everybody who speaks to you actually <laughs> appreciates your perspective. <laughs> well, we saw, I was em- employee, I think I was employee 17 at the Quellos Group when I started with them. And we had over 350 employees when we sold to BlackRock about 10 years later. We went through multiple phases of the company as we grew. When we had 50 people, communication was a lot different than when we had 20 people. And it was a lot different when we went to 150 and 200 people. And the people we hired in to do jobs ended up managing departments. And some of our more successful managers would hire the first person into a department, someone who could be the manager or supervisor of a department, not just somebody who could do the specific job that was needed at that time. That was part of our forward thinking and our growth plan. So really thinking about how you're going to grow and how the people who come in are going to serve the entity going forward. Yeah, I I really appreciate that. And so, you know, what I would ask is, you know, taking that forward-looking frame of mind, a researcher comes to talk to you, and maybe they really do love the science. They also want to be... A founder or part of a startup or somebody's pushed them or told them they should or 
maybe they just want to go for the glory or whatever it is. Um, how do you position them? What advice do you give them when you see that they really shouldn't be CEO, <laughs> but what they're working on is really amazing and the world needs it? Like, what do you do with them? Well, sometimes you can have conversations around what they really want to achieve. You know, is it more important to them to be the CEO of a company or to see their innovation out in the world helping people? You know, what, what's really going to drive them to be successful? And also, you know, painting a picture of what growth in that company is going to be like, how many people they're going to ultimately need to have that idea be successful, as well as how much capital it's probably going to take. Like, that's something that a lot of the prospective founders dramatically underestimate is how much cash it's going to take to get their novel idea from, you know, lab bench, it works, to selling, you know, thousands of the devices where they can be used independently. Yeah, I think um, that is always interesting. I, I, I wonder, because I talk to a lot of innovators who feel like they've got a proof of concept, it works, the work is done, right? I mean, like, why... Why do you need all that extra money and all these people when they've made it work? It's done, right? Isn't it ready for market at that point? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I, I've built it and they will buy it philosophy comes out often when we're talking with entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most overnight successes took 10 to 15 years to really materialize. Uh, you know, even things like YouTube wasn't an overnight success. It took years of those founders to get that out and to have a huge success with YouTube. Smartphones, those took decades as well. I was an early Apple Newton user, oh, right? Newton. If you remember the Newton, that was pre-Palm Pilot. It took so decades good. to get to the first iPhone or, you know, the first RIM uh, BlackBerry mm-hmm. handheld. Though There was a ton of development that happened before those products were successful. It just, it always takes longer. It always takes more money. Uh, and those are, those are sometimes some harder conversations to have with the entrepreneurs of what it's going to take and why, you know, if, if it's a medical device, the FDA is going to want to see both manufacturing reliability and reproducibility as well as reproducibility of your test results. And it's going to take a lot of money to get through a clinical study to prove out a device. I really appreciate that. It sounds like the work of starting a company is really like the work of doing the science in the lab. They have a hypothesis and they intend to just settle in. I mean, PhDs are five to seven years and the researchers, um, the PIs are around for well longer than that. So maybe if we, I think, think about these things in those perspectives or those time frames, it kind of comes together. So there is some disconnect in talking with uh, the entrepreneurs about how long they should really expect it to take. But uh, you know, within the Alliance of Angels, where I do a lot of investing, five to 10 years is not uncommon at all to see a successful company exit. So it almost sounds like the request for the three-year plan or five-year plan is potentially to see if they're able to plan um, and then working with them to really fill out a plan that would work, I think. It, it is. We want to see if there's some viable plan to get to, you know, to get to an exit, 
but things almost always take longer. They almost always take more money. Um, and there's very much as an aspect, as you said, Teddy, about can these entrepreneurs create a, a plan that's viable and can they work their plan? We look for entrepreneurs who we think have the staying power to stick with their idea because it's probably going to take five to ten years to get an idea really out and commercialized well enough that somebody wants to acquire the company. If an entrepreneur is impatient, that's a bad sign. If we think they don't have the economic ability to stick with a startup if they're drawing too low a salary, that's also a warning sign. Uh, there are a lot of people who will advise these early stage entrepreneurs at the university. And one of the things we try to make sure of you know, within the Alliance of Angels when we're making an investment is that the entrepreneurs will still own enough of their company after we've made our investment. But own enough to stay motivated in their company after we've made our investment. So it sounds like, you know, you're really trying to make sure there's a financial incentive for them to stick with it. A lot of people will say with a startup, oh, no, don't take any salary, just take equity. But what I'm hearing from you is, no, the salary has to be high enough so they can survive. <laughs> right. And the equity has to be, that's retained has to be enough for them to still care. Um, and so when we, we think about startups, you know, the question I have then is how do we change that mindset in, in the startup community to get people to be thinking that way? People might think, well, I can get by on a salary of, say, $50,000 in Seattle for you know, six months. But six months turns into nine months, turns into a year, can turn into a year and a half. We want to make sure that the entrepreneur is making enough money that they're not worried about their rent or being able to provide for their kids. But at the same time, we want it to not them not be making so much money that they're really comfortable in that startup, in that early stage startup. That there's a little bit of drive for them to hit the next level, but that they're not worried about their credit card bill or their rent bill or groceries or you know that's that's not a good place to be and that takes more money in Seattle than it does in some other cities and I think good investors will want to make sure that there's an appropriate level of salary for those early stage entrepreneurs okay so since we're talking numbers what's the number right what should they ask for? Is this their compensation for the year? So it, it does depend some on the, the you know the sector they're in. But if somebody's you know say a PhD scientist coming out of the University of Washington, say, expecting you know an early stage salary of like one hundred and ten to maybe one hundred and fifty is not out of bounds. Um, and you know, but it, you'll also compare it to the industry and working for. Uh, taking an industrial job in your sector, it should probably be a little less than that. You know, maybe 80% of that as an upper end. Because you want them to be a little hungry, but not, you, we don't want them starving. Because if they're starving, they have to stop working eventually. Or they're going to start to resent the startup that they're working for. And this isn't just true for the CEOs. It's true for the other people there, too. You don't want the employees to be frustrated, feel like they can't get by, and become desperate because they'll either resent the startup or they'll leave and they'll go somewhere else. Both are bad outcomes. Okay. So 
I've been here at the university almost four years. One of the things that has shocked me has been how little graduate students are paid <laughs> and how little postdocs are paid. So they're coming out of this lifestyle of barely surviving, in my mind. Um, and you're saying that they really need to be thinking about being sustainable. I, yes, I think it does need to be sustainable because they might be in that early phase of that startup, you know, maybe two to three years till they're hitting that level where they've got a little more commercial traction. Maybe they're getting some venture money coming in and they can start to, you know, to earn more money. Um, they need to be at a, you know, a sustainable or at least a tolerable level of income. And I would say graduate students, you know, or even postdocs tend to be a little below that at a lot of universities where you're willing to do that job because you're also getting a tuition waiver or you're, or you're willing to do the job because you know it's for a very finite amount of time while you're getting your PhD and you're kind of getting by. But once you're out working for a startup, that painful period of salary needs to be quite short. And I imagine it's in part, you know, not just the tolerance of the innovator, but also the tolerance of their partner at home or their situation. Uh, the last startup I worked on, you know, I'd been running my own consultancy and I had some client projects, but as I did more on the startup, I had less time for sure. my client projects. I wasn't looking for clients. And my wife is like, hey, you know, uh, are you working? Are you bringing home money? And so me and the co-founder, we're like, uh, okay, how much money do I need so my wife will stop heckling me? And we did, unfortunately, we came to $50,000. I was like, $50,000. I think I can get away with that and maybe do a couple projects a year. We'll be fine. Um, but I really appreciate that because I was probably too low. Yeah. And I, I think there's another side, too of if you can't raise enough money to be able to pay yourself a minimum living wage, then maybe you need to be rethinking your startup or your story or your business plan. You know, going out and testing your idea against the market and seeing what you can raise is a really good way of testing your story and your strategy and you can revise it. You know, one thing I would tell entrepreneurs is don't go talk to 12 people out of the out of the gate or 12 different prospective funders. Talk to one or two, take the feedback, think about it, make some adjustments, go talk to a few more. But if you can't raise money for your startup idea, it's a big warning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big warning. So you get that warning, you can't raise money. Is it that you should take it as a big warning and maybe revisit what you're doing after 10, after 20, after 30? You have to be stubborn, but at the same time, you need to know when to give up or change. You, you have to be, you know, stubborn. I don't like the word stubborn because stubborn implies you're doing the same thing over and over. You've got to be adapting some. If you're hearing the same objections in each pitch, you need to think about what could you change or how could you pitch differently? Is there a way to change your story? But you need to be tenacious, maybe, not stubborn. But what if, what if I'm a brilliant innovator and these other people just don't understand my brilliance? 
it can happen. And there's some companies, like Evernote talked about how they pitched, I don't remember, it was 60, 80 people, and then they finally got one who got their idea. It can happen. But if you're out pitching over and over again and you're not getting investment, you need to at least reflect on how you're telling your story or who's telling your story is another big factor because I've seen multiple startups where the person they have out front telling the story is not the most effective person at telling the story. And often that's a scientific founder where somebody who's got just a little bit of distance from the idea can explain it in easier terms for people to understand. If, if the inventor has a PhD in uh, microbiology, they might have trouble communicating to somebody who made their money as a, say, a professional investor. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I try to encourage people to think about is um, if you're pitching, you're talking to people who are really smart. They just have no idea what you're talking about. You know, it's like going to a foreign country. Um, you're not ignorant. You just don't know the language, right? And so I, I appreciate that, that maybe adding a partner to the team that can tell the story a little bit better uh, could be helpful. But what I've seen in my own personal experience is sometimes that's difficult for the scientist to have someone else tell the story without all the precision it's very often hard for scientists to give up on some of that pre pre precision in telling the story, but it's really critical. I think Richard Feynman talked about how you need to be able to teach things to a kindergartner or explain difficult concepts to a kindergartner. If you can't do that, it might be a sign that you yourself don't understand it well enough yet. And hopefully most of us investors are a little better than kindergartners, but Often, it's what you said, Teddy, we don't have the expertise in their field. We're trying to understand it. We're trying to draw parallels. But it needs to be simplified down. And really, ideas need to be simplified down to the crux or the core concept that is the innovation. That needs to be laid out and then explained to the investor why that innovation is so important or what the implications of that innovation will be. And often there is a way to talk about the innovation without all the technical jargon. Mm -hmm. It also seems like there's a need to explain why their flavor of the innovation is particularly unique. Uh, it seems to be, you know, because you know, do a lot of coaching with with entrepreneurs early, early, early stage, and they always want to think that they're the only ones ever who've ever done something. And I, and I'll say to them, like, look, please don't ever say that. Um, what do you see? You know, how does that look for you on your side? Well, we sometimes see groups that have an innovation. And they haven't really looked out at what the competition looks like or what other ideas are out there. Or they haven't done enough of that exploration of the alternate ways of you know, getting the result for the customer that the customer's looking for. And it, it's incredibly important to look at those competitors, especially competitors that are ahead of the company in terms of you know, being in the market today. If somebody's in the market today and someone else is trying to disrupt it by delivering a new product, 
The new product needs to be significantly better, significantly cheaper, faster, to dislodge the habits that people have of buying what they've been using or for a doctor to make a change from what's been the standard of care and what has worked for decades perhaps and what's not very likely to get the doctor sued. You know, you've got to have a real compelling reason for that innovation to drive that type of change. Do you ever help the innovators out, you know, when they pitch and they say, we're the only ones ever? Do you ever <laughs> say to them, no, I just talked to five last week? Or do you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <great>. Absolutely. <laughs> and we, we'll tell, you know, we'll tell the innovators when, when we hear the pitch, we try to give them useful feedback. We try to do it in a, you know, thoughtful, kind way. But, you know, another thing we'll hear a lot is this is the only round of financing that we're ever going to need for our company. That is almost never true for any company. And I'll tell the entrepreneur, like, look, you need to stop saying that because that's going to cost you credibility with any other investor you're pitching to. There's always an, a second round, or you at least need to plan for, if we need more money, this is how we're going to try to try to get it. I think that is the best ad for Alliance of Angels. If nothing else, you're going to get some honest, helpful feedback. <laughs> they'll tell you that you're not the only competitor out there, and they'll tell you how to make sure you're representing yourself well when you're talking to future investors and future pitchers. Definitely appreciate that, Eric. Thank you. And I really appreciate that that's what you bring to business and to innovation and to startups is helping a lot of these innovative folks figure out how to make their innovations work, how to, how to make them companies. Um, and with that, I would say thank you. Thank you for joining us um, at the Innovators Garage. We're always excited to talk to folks and give the audience an opportunity to learn from people like you who've done these things. Um, it's a wonderful thing that you do. You know, ultimately the goal is to get wonderful things out to the world. And the more we have people like you able to advise people, even if it's just getting them to the next step, um, that makes a huge contribution. So thank you for your work. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I really like working with uh, entrepreneurs. Thank you, Eric Larson. The Innovators Garage is supported by the NIH-funded Institute of Translational Health Sciences based out of the University of Washington. For more information, visit iths.org.
Thank you, Teddy. How are you? I'm doing well today. It's um, it's a busy time here in Seattle with a lot of companies looking mm -hmm. for funding, a lot of companies talking to, I'm with the Alliance of Angels. There's a lot of companies talking to us here at the Alliance of Angels. And we, we're seeing a lot of great opportunities. 